Okay, Assalamu alaikum everyone. This is Narakman Rahim. Um, I'm so excited to welcome you to, uh, I guess, our now 69th surah in um, Project Illumin. Um, Alhamdulillah, you know, I, I ha okay, well, let me start with, um, we got, I got a message, um, an email, which is not just for us, but for everyone here and everyone who's watching. So I thought I would just share it. Salam Grace, I just wanted to send a quick note saying I'm following the halakas like a snail, a little bit every day, making my notes and little summaries. Alhamdulillah, fills my heart with such love and gratitude for this message. What an astonishing living moral document God has given us. Please send my salam to your whole family and all the students at Usuli. I love seeing the little jokes and interactions between you all. This work has been an incredible thing for me, and you, the sheikh, and your family are in my every dua. So I'm so grateful that, um, you know, I think this, um, this week was, um, you know, obviously uh, the, the holiday weekend, and um, we had such um, a, a blessing and honor to have a lot of, like loved ones here with us. And there were so many magical moments. Um, and I think that, um, you know, you really don't realize how special um, things are until you are surrounded by people who you love and who love what you're doing um, and who share this journey with you. Because um, I've said many times, you know, this has been a lonely journey. We did this for many years before, you know, Usuli became a thing. And then even when Usuli started, there were just, you know, a small group of, of people that would follow. And then, alhamdulillah, with the pandemic, um, more people were searching online and um, found their way to what we were doing. And, um, you know, like I, I wanted to say, yesterday's khutbah was really powerful. Um, Sheikh talked about, you know, the importance of the Usuli voice and creating a safe space. Um, and I feel like that's one of the things that's really missing in our world that is so necessary, is a place where you can come together with people who are um, you know, not just brilliant, because certainly the people who have gathered and who are interested in following Suli and the people who we know are you know, like a, a laundry list of, of brainiacs, you know, it's like an Ivy League register, or you know, people who are super um, passionate and, and you know, um, as I've said before, like perfectionists and overachievers. Um, but the in intellect part is super important, but none of it matters if you don't have heart and if you don't have piety. And I think that's the one thing that brings us all together is even if your level of knowledge for um, Islamic theology or history or any of that is, is missing um, or, you know, just not developed, um, the piety in the heart and the relationship, the, you know, the, the passion for wanting to find something more beautiful, um, I think makes this space attractive because a lot of times what we're talking about here is stuff that resonates with you. Um, and you know, we, we try to make it a point to say, you know, here in this space, you can talk about anything, and you can, and you'll hear us talk about anything, and things that other people are not willing to talk about because maybe you know they're worried about the political implication or the financial implication, or they don't have the bravery um, or the knowledge. And so I feel like what we've created is is really special, and it gets validated when you meet the people who love what you do, and you find that they're amazing and beautiful and like among the most pure souls that you've ever met so we were really honored with just you know incredibly beautiful people and and i i just think that that is a, you know a sign and a message that we're doing something um right i hope and good and and that um you know if we can attract beautiful people then you know there must be something good happening here so um and you know even for people who are you know watching from afar 
um, to know that there is a place and there is a space where you can tune in and you can hear us talk in a way that you might not hear anywhere else. Um, and so there's hope, you know, there, we're, we're here. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, and one of the things that um, is fabulous when you have a gathering of beautiful souls is then I get to reach out and say, hey, I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> and, so, and I recruit people to come share this introduction space. So I am so excited and honored to say I have one of the most beautiful souls that I know on the planet, among many, um, coming up here to um, share you know, her passion and, um, or you know, whatever, I, I don't know what she's gonna speak about, but I definitely had to twist, do some arm twisting. And so um, I know she doesn't like speaking in public. And so I'm, I'm sorry, and I, I hope that she'll <laughs> forgive me. But, um, you know, this is one of those things where actually I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about this concept that actually Sheikh taught me many years ago and that lives somewhere in his ocean of scholarship, but this idea of the tapestry of souls. This is a beautiful concept, tapestry of souls. And you imagine that each person has like, you know, a set of gifts, right? A set of strengths and weaknesses that God has given them. And then you might match that person as the next panel on the tapestry with someone who has you know, a weakness whose strength you can account for and a strength whose weakness you can account for. And then you imagine multiplying that out to the entire, you know, like world and imagine that all these people are connected strength to weakness, strength to weakness, passion to passion to passion. And when they're all like fo focused towards God and saying, we're gonna put this, you know, collective energy towards creating something beautiful. It's such a powerful idea. And it's one of the things that I, I have always remembered and also, you know, remembering the story of how the prophet, um, you know, would bring his companions and, and utilize their, their strengths. So I love the idea that here at Asuli, you know, we, I, we really work with, um, you know, people on, with their passion and their strength and, you know, what makes them excited and, and lit up. And so I hope that this opportunity to hear, um, you know, someone speak at, at you know, the, the introduction is a way, um, you know, to share a passion. And um, everyone has such an important role to play. Dariat. Right? <laughs> That's a lesson from Surah Darya. Everyone has a really important role to play. So, um, Mafaz is, um, as I said, you know, a, a rock star, a superstar, um, someone who we met actually because um, she is part of a um, book club um, that is connected with Harvard, and they had read the professor's book, um, Reasoning with God. And they, you know, typically read, you know, these amazing books and then invite the author to come, you know, and engage and have questions. And it was a magical moment, honestly. And it was a wonderful way um, to meet, I mean, just a bunch of Mariams. You know, we, we have a term Mariam for the, you know, rock star, super empowered women um, who we try to um, encourage, you know, the um, the growth of, like, this, this I want to create this huge Mariam club, so anyway, that's a separate topic. <laughs> but anyway, um, Afaz is definitely a superstar in the Mariam club. Um, and so we met these incredible women who were just so, you know, brilliant and passionate and beautiful. Um, and, you know, we were so honored to meet Mafaz in that context. And then through Mafaz, we met her incredible rock star father, Tarek al-Suidan, who was someone that the Sheikh really um, looked up to when he was, you know, young, um, younger and, you know, coming up through the scholarly ranks. And so it was like um, so exciting. And if you know from this summer, we had um, an incredible conversation with um, Tarek Sudan. 
so and then the gifts just keep giving i mean we've met you know friends through mathaz and mathaz's friends and you know and we have had these you know just beautiful gatherings and so um you know but again like her laundry list of incredible like accomplishments and talents among them you know like she um, is getting her PhD right at Harvard and um, studies under Cornell West, or he's his advisor. So that's pretty intensely amazing. Um, you know, she volunteers with like Muslim prisoners. Um, she speaks out, you know, against Palestine, Black Lives Matters. I mean, she's out on the front line. You know, it's just like really um, incredible. But aside from all of that, she is one of the most beautiful souls I have met light just emanates from her eyes you know it's one of these people that you just meet and you feel an instant connection with and it's like you just feel the love and I think that that's honestly that's what I think pulls all of these beautiful souls here together is just that love and you know um, it's it's the knowledge is important you know the activism is important but you know um, the most important thing is the love and the commitment to doing something beautiful, you know, for God and building that relationship with God. And I think Mephaz is just um, superstar Mariam in, in every every way um, like that. So anyway, now I know you you don't like public speaking. I've made I, I hope you know made it harder for you. But um, I just yeah I love Mephaz and and I know you guys will love her and um, and you know you're among friends and you're just so excited to hear your passion and whatever you want to um, bless us with. So um, please come on up and um, alhamdulillah. Um, I am a meticulous, like notorious over-preparer. So I wrote something, so I hope, you know, it's okay if I just read what I wrote. Um, it's, a, it's a bit easier for me that way. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa salatu wa salamu ala nabiyyina al-kareem المرسل رحمة للعالمين محمد بن آمنة عليه أفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, we begin by invoking prayers and blessings upon the messenger of God, the mercy of our world, our beloved Muhammad, son of Amina. May Allah be pleased with him and those who follow him. Amin. We begin in gratitude to God, the one, the majestic, the sustainer, the just, the gentle, the wise, the witness, the judge, the accounter, the restorer, the advocate, the steadfast, the friend, the truth, al-haq. We begin steeped in our reliance on the one who grants us life, blesses us with the ability to wonder, and bestows knowledge within us in ways that we know and ways that we do not know. We begin in awareness that we walk a trodden path, laid by prophets, companions, believers, workers, laborers, seekers, and tho those whom the world calls sinners, but whom only God knows the holiness of their core. We begin in debt to communities who have tried hard to fight for each other, who sometimes failed and sometimes flourished, but who nonetheless gave us language and experience to learn from. We begin in shame before those whom our path of knowledge does not immediately serve. We begin in shame before those who sleep on floors of detention centers tonight, for whom tomorrow's meal is not guaranteed, for those whose struggles we are told to sometimes sympathize with, 
but whose proximity we are told to always fear. We begin with an apology to those who have been discarded, disregarded, dismissed by ourselves, our communities, delegitimized, told and shown that their lives do not matter, told and treated as though God does not love them. We love them. We begin in an invitation to our siblings in spirit in whom God's breath resides. This is our caravan of no despair. This is where we dream that the earth has no wretched. We begin with an invitation to be still for a moment and think and imagine an otherwise existence where God's vast universe has room for us all. When I was asked to give some remarks as an introduction to today's session, my immediate reaction was to say no, uh, as that is my immediate reaction when anyone asks me to speak about anything ever. Um, but it was also my reaction because of the magnitude of the content and the present company. I begin with the magnitude of the present company. I first learned of Usuli Institute when I contacted uh, Dr. Khalid to organize a discussion of his brilliant book, Reasoning with God. Since then, I have become acquainted with the Tafsir Project, Project Illumin, the phenomenal library and manuscript collection here, the important publications that are in the pipeline, and perhaps most importantly, the beloved community that has been cultivated amongst Usuli students. I had, of course, been acquainted with Dr. Khalid's books before, uh, when a friend of mine gave me a copy of the Search for Beauty in Islam when I was in, in high school, I had never thought that I would uh, one day be sitting next to the book's author, um, shamefully going on and on while he sits here uh, listening uh, very graciously, I might add. Um, but the Search for Beauty in Islam is a book that quite literally changed the course of my life. Uh, and to see its ethic come alive here at the Usuli Institute just cast the old adage that you should never meet your, your heroes in a very dubious light. Um, what you have all done here, every single one of you, from Dr. Khaled to Grace to, to Marwa to Rami to Ramin to Joe to Sharif to, to Mido to Ustad Khaled to everyone who, who is in the community and helps when they can, uh, I've just never, I've never seen that before in a, in a Muslim community. While others proclaim, come as you are, you practice it. To be in a place where I cannot imagine any one of my friends being turned away, and I have a very deeply diverse and perhaps blasphemous group of friends, <laughs> you really can't put words to how, that, to how that feels. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Uh, thank you for giving us, and, and me in particular, access to your content and, and to your community. I am fully aware of how generous uh, that is, especially considering that I'm not a student here or a fellow. Um, and I don't have any like real affiliation other than the fact that I, I, I love you for the sake of Allah. I love the work that you do for the sake of Allah. And I believe in, in what your message does and means for our community. So thank you for that. And now for the magnitude of the content. Um, I, like most young Muslims, uh, have struggled with my faith deeply in the past. Um, and in a particularly difficult moment in that struggle, I felt as though I needed to make a declaration to someone. So I went to a family member that I deeply love and I said, I need to say out loud that I struggle with the details of my faith. But I also need to say that there are two things that I know and that I hope when I die I remember. That I believe that God is God and God is one. And that I love the Quran. 
and I had not recognized the esteem of the Qur'an in my heart until that moment when I gave that thought a voice. And though I may wane and waver and grow distant from the Qur'an at times, I know what I know about how I feel. And this halaqa, these tafsir sessions, have been a blessing in helping me commit to, to that feeling in action. Not only because of consistency, which I play, place a high value on myself, but also of how the halaqas resonate with the liberatory power that the Qur'an holds for me. I was so happy to hear that today's surah was a talaq, although a bit challenged, um, because it is a surah that manifests what I see as some of the core ethical messages of the Qur'an and Islam. It is a surah that has always reminded me of three things. First, the ethics of care. And notice that I don't say the duty to fulfill responsibilities, because yes, that is a good thing. But I think here in the Qur'an, it, it goes beyond that. It goes towards the goodness of caring for one another. Second, it reminds me of the necessity of accountability and intervention as a condition of realizing that care, the full potential of that care. Because not only does it turn the lens on those being cared for, but also those who carry the burden of doing the caring. Third, of how liberating it is to be God-conscious, to have taqwa. To know that what is best is not what you may think is best, but what God, who knows all and grants from sources that we cannot imagine, might lead you, lead you towards, sometimes, with difficulty. When I teach classes on Islam, uh, and my students who are both Muslim and non-Muslim try to understand what Islam is or what the Sharia is, I tell them to stop trying to find an equivalent in modern systems of law or social organization. I tell them rather to think of projects that are imagining another way of doing things, like the call for abolition, for example. A call that centers the ethics of care, that replaces coercion with accountability, and banishment with intervention. In essence, a project that reflects what I see in Surah Al-Talaq and in the Qur'an more broadly. It is this imaginative, generative potential of applying the Qur'anic ethic that excites me and that, quite frankly, makes me a believer. And it's also what draws me to the Asuli Institute as well. So thank you again for, for all the work that you do. Uh, thank you, Dr. Khalid, for meticulously preparing for us every week. And thank you, Grace, for the immense honor of giving me time in today's session. Bismillah. We've had a track record of like when people come up here and talk, they cry or try not to cry, but I think that talk made all of us cry. <laughs> um, thank you so much. That was really beautiful and brilliant. And I think that it just, you know, you saw for yourself. This is like, this is the magic, right? This is actually what gives me hope is that people like Mathaz, um feel, you know, what we're doing, um, not just intellectually, but viscerally, you know, and then to have the incredible words to articulate it in a way that is just powerful. Um, you know, she's a poet as well, so we probably sense that. Um, but you know, I guess like our dream is always that um, what we're doing will attract you know people like Mathaz because long after we're gone, you know, I hope that Usuli will remain a lifeline and a safe space um, for future generations and. You know, this is our like legacy with the you know the the tafsir and whatever we're able to accomplish before God calls us back. Um, but it's like planting seeds for the future that I see you know the next generation and the future generations um, can hopefully um, you know water and sow and turn into an incredible 
magical forest of liberation and empowerment and knowledge and anything else that you know god will bless so um thank you so much for sharing that and uh, i'm so excited to um have our next surah inshallah bismillahirrahmanirrahim المرسل رحمة للعالمين وآله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم شح لي صبري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين تدي سورة سورة الطلاق Nafaz, uh, I, I, I don't really need to say anything other than that she's brilliant. And, um, you know, there, the, uh, in, um, in my career, there, not too often do you meet people that you wish were your students. But in her case, I wish she was my student. Um, I mean, in an academic sense, obviously. But uh, subhanAllah, I didn't know that she was going to say what she said about Surah Al-Talaq. And uh, if you get the opportunity, because this is recorded, play it back and, and listen to it carefully because um, uh, what she sees in Surah Al-Talaq parallels in uh, remarkable ways, um, precisely what I see in Surah Al-Talaq. Um, okay, so Surah Al-Talaq, of course, is a Medinian Surah, and it is um, There are a number of reports that place it as between, as, as after Surah Al-Insan, which I, we've, we've covered. Yeah, I believe. Uh, and right before Surah Al-Bayyina, which we have not covered, there are some reports that say it's right before Surah Al-Hashr. Uh, which again we we have not covered, uh, but after Surah Al-Insan, so it would be then that would also mean that it is after Surah Al obviously Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, after Surah Al-Umran, uh, after Surah Al-Nisa, um, after Surah Zalzala, Zalzala after Al-Hadid after Surah Al-Rahman, and would place it in the mid-Medinian period. Um, now, it was 
some of the very early reports um, call Surah Al-Talaq Surah Al-Nisa'i Qusra, um, meaning the, the short Surah Al-Nisa'i or the small Surah Al-Nisa'i. Um, that designation or that name for Surah Al-Talaq eventually is not the one that survives in the in the sources so it the it, it's clear that it is that more and more authorities designated the surah al-talaq uh, rather than surah al-nisa al-qusra but it's understandable why it was why some of the early reports started calling it surah Al-Nisa Al-Qusra, or the short Surah Al-Nisa, because as we will see, it is very much concerned with a living social issue, um, again in Medina, and particularly an issue that has to do with dynamics um, involving women. But what is really fascinating about Surah Al-Talaq is that once you study the content in so many ways, it is as if an addendum to Surah Al-Baqarah. In so many ways, it is as if it's a, like literally an appendix to Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, um, an afterword to Surah Al-Baqarah. And particularly the part of Surah Al-Baqarah that talk about divorce and that talk about waiting periods. And there are numerous reports that, in fact, reports that I'll, I'll comment on in a second, but that say that Surah Al-Baqarah addressed divorce, addressed waiting periods, but Surah Al-Baqarah left, um, um, left a gap in the law, if you will, that, and that this gap that was concerned um, the waiting period for women who are pregnant, waiting period for women who are past menstrual age and waiting period for women who uh, might have medical problems that prevent them from menstruation, menstruating. And that, in fact, people in Medina, this is some of the reports that you read in the tradition, that people in Medina were, were, were started asking questions uh, about these particular situations that were not addressed by Surah Al-Baqarah and that 
then Surat al-Talaq was revealed. Now, that is, although these reports, they're too numerous to, they're cumulative, so they, they probably are expressing or giving uh, expression to a historical reality. It's clear that people were asking questions about, well, what would happen if a woman is pregnant? Um, what would happen if a woman is past menstrual age? Does she have a waiting period, etc., etc.? Um, so it's clear that that's an actual historical dynamic, in my opinion. But whether, in fact, that is the occasion, the the primary reason or the main reason uh, for the the revelation of Surah Talaq. Um, I think it's a more complicated matter. I don't think it is just simply a gap in the law. Now, again, the, this issue as to what occasioned the revelation of Surah Al-Talaq, um, you get evidence that is a, a tension with one another. Um, so among the reports is that, and a rather curious report, I have to say, is that the Prophet ﷺ divorces Hafsa, one of his wives, and that, and he divorces Hafsa according to these reports because uh, he had disclosed something to her which she was supposed to keep secret, and then she went and told Aisha radiallahu anha, and uh, this um, eventually led to the Prophet divorcing her. But then the report says, but then the Prophet was told that Hafsa is intended to be, or that God has decreed that Hafsa is going to be one of his wives in paradise, and that he has to take her back. Upon which the Prophet did take Hafsa back, and that this was why Surah Al-Talaq was revealed. From a chain of transmission perspective, there are many problems with this report, including uh, in the link, a transmitter who's na not named, including um, the report going back to the, including a gap between the person who says, I heard it from the Prophet, and the person who says, I heard it from the person who heard it from the Prophet. So a missing link in the chain of transmission. So in terms of chain of transmission, it, it is, there are problems with this report. The other, uh, whether the Prophet ever divorced Hafsa is, a serious question. Um, I very much doubt, I very much doubt this entire narrative about divorcing Hafsa. And when the, that tradition says that the Prophet was told to take her back, we are never told by any of the reports who tells the Prophet to take her back. What was the form of telling? Was it Jibreel coming to the Prophet and telling him to take her back? Was it the Prophet 
doing istikhara in some other form. But there are many other questions that that makes one suspect that both of the historical veracity of that narrative and that in fact this was the reason that Surah Al-Talaq was revealed. There are other um, narratives. Um, one, for instance, that Ibn Omar um, divorces his wife but divorces her during her period, during her menstrual cycle. And uh, Umar ibn Khattab um, goes to the Prophet and tells him that my son has divorced his wife during her menstrual cycle, uh, which the, uh, upon which the Prophet then orders Ibn Umar or instructs Ibn Umar that that's inappropriate or that's improper and that he cannot divorce her, his wife uh, during her menstrual cycle. And the report even goes on to say that um, a divorce has to be a, 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 a Sunni talaq or a correct talaq has to be during a period of purity, a period of purity in which there was no intercourse. So the entire period of purity has to, the, the, has to if, if there was intercourse in the period of purity, then that talaq, according to this tradition, and this is a, a very contested issue in law, um, then that talaq is invalid and you have to wait for a period of purity in which there was no intercourse for a talaq to count. And according to then these traditions that this was an occasion for the revelation of Surah Al-Talaq. Um, there is even another report um, about a figure called Abd Yazid, Abd Yazid who reportedly um, divorced his wife and divorced his wife again during her menstrual cycle and that uh, the Prophet instructs him that that's improper. Uh, but just so you understand the complexity of, of these hadith traditions that and that this was the reason for the revelation of Surah Al-Talaq. But what's very curious is Abd Yazid uh, did not, Lam Yudrik al-Islam, he, he died before Islam. So it is impossible that this would have been the reason for uh, the revelation of Surah Al-Talaq because he, 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 he died before the prophecy after the birth of the Prophet Muhammad clearly but before the prophecy of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Okay, but these various reports, they all point out to a historical reality. And a historical reality that unfortunately you often do not find in a lot of the tafsir 
texts, um, but you can track in through various hadith, akhbar narratives uh, about that all center around the issue of um, the problems that Muslims in Medina encountered regarding divorce in particular. And the practice in, of, in pre-Islamic Arabia, or in, in, especially in, in Medina, um, but even among the Muhajireen, even among the, the Meccans um, who migrated, it was clear that a waiting periods didn't exist uh, before Islam, and the the social practice often was divorce. People did not stay unmarried very long. In fact. We have very interesting reports that divorces, which were often a family affair, uh, would occur because the family has an alternative marriage in mind for either the male or for the female. Most of the times, of course, it was for the male. And so the idea was to divorce and to immediately marry whoever the, the, the target person that the family wants this person to marry. And usually it, it was because um, taking on a second wife or taking on a, a third wife or whatnot was not possible and usually because the family of the wife who's being divorced is protesting, will not approve adding on another wife. So there was a widespread practice of, well, then you divorce and, uh, and you marry whoever this other person is. So this was one thing. The other thing, which it was clear there was quite a bit of resistance to, even after the revelation of Surah Al-Baqarah, was the tendency that right after divorce to send the woman back to her family and to say, well, now we're divorced, go back to your family, and even if there is a waiting period, that you spend this waiting period with your family rather than in the marital home. And third was a general uh, and firmly anchored practice that once a divorce occurs that the woman is no longer the financial responsibility of her, the, the husband who divorced her. 
so that whether in her waiting period or whether during her pregnancy or whatnot, if a divorce occurs, then immediately financial responsibility passes on to her family. And you have, you find a lot of very interesting um, narratives about the, the difficulty in getting the social practices to change, in getting people to wait after a, a divorce, before remarrying, and getting people to not resort to the to the fiat position of well go back to your family we're now divorced so even if there is a waiting period as Surat al-Baqarah mandated uh, then you should that waiting period should be with your family and of course the issue of financial support and as we'll see it is important to understand the 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 social background to Surah Al-Talaq itself. And Surah Al-Talaq then, we notice, has two main sections. It, it immediately addresses the an, an, if you will, the legal issue at hand, it immediately goes into prescriptive commands. But then the second part of Surah Al-Talaq takes a step back and says something about general moral norms. And connecting the two the first part of Surah Al-Talaq to the second part of Surah Al-Talaq was rarely done in the Islamic tradition. While it is really a very critical part of the message of Surah Al-Talaq, and that's why I was impressed by what Mafas said. Because apparently she noticed what um, what a lot of the commentators don't notice. So it immediately starts by speaking to the Prophet This is by the, one of the reasons that so many commentators said that the occasion for revelation is Hafsa's divorce or Hafsa's purported divorce. Um, but as again, this as a lot of the Quranic commentators talk about, that when the Quran will often talk to the Prophet as a representative of his Ummah. So, although as you notice, Ya Ayyuhan Nabi, it's addressed to the Prophet, but it's addressing the Ummah of the Prophet through the Prophet. So, Ya Ayyuhan Nabi, Iza Tallaqtum Nisa, Fatallikuhunna Liiddatihin. واحصل عدة واتقوا الله ربكم لا لا تخرجهن من بيوتهم ولا ولا يخرجن إلا أن يأتينا بفاحشة مبينة 
تلك حدود الله ومن يتعدى حدود الله فقد ظلم نفسه so O Prophet if you when you divorce women divorce them لعدتهن there is an interesting grammatical discussion in this but that a divorce it's like saying there cannot be a divorce without the idda periods so it is critical that you do not violate the laws of idda which as i said there was quite a bit of resistance to even after the surah al-baqarah to the laws of idda and count the idda so in other it's like saying and keep track of the idda period it is a it is like an underscoring that the issue of the idda and the passing of the proper idda time is not something to be taken lightly and is not something to just be observed if convenient or were convenient or so on so that's the first component of course in in the one of the debates because of the grammatical construction that emerges is do you count the idda in terms of menstrual cycles or purity from the periods of menstruation or the periods of purity and we don't need to get into that debate although the probably the correct opinion is that you counted by periods of purity rather than by periods of menstruation which means it's a, it becomes slightly longer okay and then the second element which the surah immediately addresses is the issue of ikhraj now notice and this is something that the the commentators on the quran notice themselves to that it says la tukhrijuhunna min biyutihin don't expel them don't force them out of their homes now the practice social practice was that the home was always the responsibility of the husband it is the husband who buys the marital home it is the husband who provides the marital home it is the husband who furnishes the marital home and the woman enters the marital home and upon a divorce she returns to her family home and leaves the marital home and commentators paused at this issue of why the quran 
refers to the marital home as the as the as their homes. Now, many commentators said, well, the reason for that is to emphasize that as long that ethically rather than legally, that as long as the marriage continues, including the waiting period, it is still considered her home. So and although legal title is with the husband, that as a as as a khuluki matter, as a matter of ethics, that this is to be treated as her home. And thus she cannot be forced out of the home during this waiting period. Now, in Islamic jurisprudence, there are prolonged discussions about this issue of residence in the marital home after pronunciation of a talaq. Um, if and m most of the debates are about the range is quite wide. Let's put it this way: some conceived of this issue of being in the marital home in the waiting period. As if, as if, from our modern perspective, a detention period. So effectively, the woman is in the marital home and she should not leave the marital home um, for any reason. So she's, she stays during the waiting period in the marital home. And then there are these you know, debates about, well, can she leave if by permission of her husband? Some even went as far as saying, no, even if her husband gives her permission, then she, she should not leave the marital home. Can she leave by ittifaq? Can her and her husband agree that she is allowed to leave the marital home? Meaning, when I say leave, meaning exit for any reason. Um, and so you get into these, um, and in, again, in the traditional juristic, in the classical juristic tradition, you get these extensive discussions. But and then the, those who say, well, she may leave for a necessity. So if uh, only if there's in, something really important that she needs to leave the marital home for. But, you know, there is I hope I wrote it down so I'm not winging. Hold on. Um, there is a tradition that has always caught my attention um, on this matter. 
And the moral import of the tradition is what deserves reflection. So, a man known as Jabir bin Abdullah purportedly divorced his wife and she had, this wife had a, um, a farm and she, in, the, in many of the reports it say a farm of palm trees, doesn't matter, anyway, and she was in her waiting period and she wanted to leave the marital home to go take care of her palm trees or her farm. And then the, the, the her husband, soon to be ex-husband, told her no, she can't leave the home to go take care of her farm trees. And she somehow managed to get the complaint to the Prophet and when the matter reaches the Prophet he says, no, she has, she, of course she can go out to take care of her farm. Um, she is allowed, and that's, but the, the, in the tradition he says, um, he said, فَإِنَّكِ عَسَى أَن تَتَصَدَّقِ when the Prophet justifies as to why she's allowed to leave the marital home, he doesn't say because it's necessary. And, and this is just, look at how different sort of the ethical attitude than our, in our modern age. He says, well, sure, you can go out to take, take care of your farm because perhaps it be, will be the means for either that you will engage in charity or do some good. It is the, the, the focus, the moral focus, it's a very different attitude to material things. It's not about, well, you can go take care of your farm because it's your financial right. But immediately, what the mind went to is the moral good that you can add. And because of that moral good, of course, she should be allowed to leave now, of course, you know, this tradition, interestingly enough, doesn't enter into a lot of juristic um, discourses for whatever reason. But I'm just telling you what the tradition says before um, getting to my interpretation of Surah Al-Talaq. Okay. And so they are they have a right to live in the marital home during the waiting period and they cannot be forced out of material out of the marital home illa an yatina bifahisha here fahisha is immoral conduct and 
not just immoral conduct, but the Quran adds the word Mubayina. Mubayina, so first is the issue of what is the immoral conduct that the Quran is talking about. Second thing, why does it say Mubayina? So Muhammad Asad, you notice he translates it at unless they become openly guilty of immoral conduct. For Muhammad Asad, it is immoral conduct that is out in public. Most jurists said, no, Mubayina means immoral conduct that is well attested. In other words, there are witnesses to that immoral conduct. And the witnesses are fair witnesses that there are, in other words, it is not just the testimony or the desire of the husband. In, as a legal matter, this is what we say, once the Quran says, it means that there has to be a process. It is not simply the will of the husband. It is not simply the say-so of the husband. But that there has to be a process where the husband goes to a party. And when the Prophet was alive, it was mostly the Prophet. But upon the death of the Prophet, it was, you know, and of course, during the Khilafah period, the, the period of Abu Bakr and Omar and, and um, Osman and Ali, it was usually the Khulafa or the, their governors. But then later on, it was to a judge. And you plead, what you argue is, there is a fahisha. Now, in Islamic law, there is a huge prolonged debate about whether the immoral conduct the Quran is talking about is it limited to sexual misconduct. So she only, the husband has the right to turn her out during the waiting period only if she engages in sexual misconduct. The sexual misconduct is short of adultery or fornication, doesn't need four witnesses, but sexual misconduct that there is evidentiary proof as to the occurrence of the sexual misconduct. Or whether it also includes beyond sexual misconduct things like uh, using obscenities against the family of the husband. The reason for this is that apparently some of the earliest cases that came up is a woman who during her waiting period, but this was after the revelation of this surah, so it's, it's not, um, uh, but apparently, reportedly it took place during the time of Omar, Omar ibn Khattab, uh, that um, she constantly cursed out her mother-in-law during a wearing period and used, yeah, some very obscene words, um, including references to private parts and so on. Um, and, and so that the husband goes to... Um, uh, I forget if it was Omar himself or a governor, but anyway, that and says, you know, she's constantly cussing out my 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 mother, um, 
does this qualify as a fahisha? And and it, in in this report, it is determined that yes, this does qualify as a fahisha, and so she can be sent back home. Okay. And notice then, وَتِلْكَ حُدُودُ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ يَتَعَدَّ حُدُودَ اللَّهِ فَقَدْ ظَلَمَ نَفْسَهِ The emphasis that, that you don't have a choice on this matter. When the Qur'an underscores something like this, and especially underscoring it after the revelation in Surah Al-Baqarah, in I think it's the... 230s of Surah Al-Baqarah or so. Low, low 30s. That that is often a very good indicator that you had a persistent social issue. In other words, that there was social resistance to that practice. And in fact, when you dove into historical research, you find that that suspicion is borne out. That the underscoring that these are God's boundaries and that transgressing God's boundaries um, is a particular form of dhul. It is because this was not a popular measure among in these in the social dynamics um, of early Muslim society. Okay. Now, لا تدري لعل الله يحدث بعد ذلك أمرا. You don't know. God may well facilitate something. Now, you pause and you ask, and there are two parts, how the, the, the tradition reacted to this and the more interpretive part that we can engage in. So in terms first of the tradition, most Quranic commentators paused at this further statement and said, well, when Allah tells us, you don't know, perhaps God will make something transpire. They took this as an instruction as to the the part of the purpose of the waiting period. And here is sort of the, the, the um, uh, we know that, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is in Surah Al-Ahzab, that in Surah Al-Ahzab, Yeah, it is Surah Al-Ahzab. Yeah. In Surah Al-Ahzab, that if 
two people marry and they don't consummate the marriage, there's and there's a divorce before consummation, there's no idda. There's no idda period. So what is the point of the idda period? If the point of the idda period if they don't con from what Surah Al-Ahzab says, it seems that the point of the Idda period is to make sure it was known as istibra that that there's no pregnancy. That it is clear that there is no child belonging to the marriage. But there is an issue, right? If that is the point, then you don't need three menstrual cycles to make sure that there is no um, pregnancy. Even if one menstrual cycle is not enough, or even if you're not sure if it is a menstrual cycle or just bleeding, as, you know, think of the, uh, then, but three, interestingly, this has particular importance in our modern age, right? Because if the purpose of the Idda period is simply to make sure that there is no pregnancy, well, in the modern age, we have means of finding that out without having to go through the waiting period. And the fact that if you have not consummated the marriage, there is no waiting period, seems to indicate what? That if you can in fact ascertain that there is no pregnancy, then you don't have to worry about a waiting period. Except, except for this proviso. La tadri, la Allah, because when Allah said that, that gave Muslim jurors pause. Perhaps the point of the waiting period is not simply to make sure that there is no pregnancy, but effectively that it is a cooling off period that perhaps during this time the hearts would be reconciled and the marriage would be saved. Now, if so, however, then Muslim jurists started wrestling with another issue. So the Quran says that you cannot, that a woman has a right to be in the marital home during the waiting period. But how about the husband? Can the husband leave? So can I say, well, you stay here and I'm going to go back, I'm going to go stay with my brother. Or I'm going to go stay with my parents. If 
the issue of potential for reconciliation is mandatory if this is part of Hududullah, then the answer is no, the husband has to be with the divor divorcee under the same roof during the waiting period. If it is merely a recommendation, then the answer is, well, no, because Allah could reconcile the hearts whether you're under the same roof or not under the same roof. It really is not the critical issue. And you get, of course, that has produced an enormous amount of enormous amount of discussions in the Islamic legal tradition. Okay. Notice that everything I'm saying about the tradition tells you the, the, the trying to sort of fetter out what the legal implication of this. But I'll, I'll go through sort of the, what you need to know about sort of what Surah Al-Talaq, the interpretive communities has resulted from Surah Al-Talaq, and then go back and talk about what I think Surah Al-Talaq was, was doing. Okay. Then, underscoring, now once the waiting period is over, فَإِذَا بَلَغْنَ أَجَلَهُنَّ فَمْسِكُوهُنَّ بِمَعْرُوفٍ That once the waiting period is over, it's either the the marriage continues in goodness. Muhammad Asad says in a fair manner. Ma'roof, yeah, a fair manner or in, in goodness, in decency. Um, or you separate in goodness. Again, the interpretive tradition. Muslim scholars didn't pause long about although most of the discussions centered around whether the husband can take back the wife during the waiting period, whether she wants to or not. And for the life of me, I don't understand how does a husband taking back a wife who doesn't want to continue on with the marriage can be imsak bimaruf. I mean, to, to call that imsak bimaruf is, to me, just completely nonsensical. Um, but, you know, you, you've, if, um, and if you ask a local imam, I'm sure, in your mosque, does a husband have a right to continue the marriage in the waiting period, whether the wife agrees to it or not? Probably your imam will tell you, yes, he does. And consent to it. Although it's a debated matter in the, in the legal tradition, but I don't even understand the debate because imsad maruf is inconsistent with continuing the marriage whether a wife, if a wife doesn't want to continue. That's not an imsad maruf. Anyway.
But the pause at separating in a fair manner or in a decent manner and say, well, what does this refer to in particular? And there are a number of reports that go back to companions of the Prophet or even the successors, successors of the Prophet that say that what is intended by this in a legalistic, from a legalistic perspective, is what has been reported after the revelation of Surah Al-Baqarah to have occurred on several occasions. And that is that you divorce, you wait a day or two days before the end of the waiting period, and then you say, well, I revoke the talaq, meaning the marriage resumes. And that they would do this in order to... Um, um, in order to harass a woman. So they would play around with the, the exploit the waiting period in order to aggravate the woman by going back and forth. And most, the vast majority of jurors said that this is what, when it says, means that you can't do that. That that's haram. Um, in this context, what, there's a, the most famous report that you read in this context about the entire issue of waiting period and so on are commonly the reports that say that the most hated halal for Allah is talaq, that or that Allah has not cre allowed halal most uh, disliked by Allah more than talaq. But there is a report that doesn't, um, is not discussed as often, although um, it, it's, it, well, you understand the importance of the report itself, which says, Um, this is the uh, the report uh, is the Prophet ﷺ speaking to Muaz, and he says to him, "Ya Muaz, ma khalaq Allah shay'an ala wash al-ard, habu ilayh min al-aytaq, wala khalaq Allah shay'an ala wash al-ard, abghadu ilayh min al-talaq." That Allah has not created something on the face of the earth more more beloved to Allah than Atak. Now Atak technically is freeing a slave. Again, for those people who like to write about slavery in the modern age, it's very interesting that they never, they never look up this report or references or discuss it or so on. But Atak also has another meaning because anytime you free a human being of an oppressive situation, that's also a talk. So if you free a person of a debt, that's a talk. 
Um, and to be told that, that that is nothing more beloved to Allah than to free a slave or to free a person of debt. Imagine if we listened carefully to the ethical import of this message. The report then continues on to say that, and at the same time, Allah has not created anything more hated to Allah, more something halal more hated to Allah than divorce. Um, these are, you know, the types of traditions that have not been ethically vetted out, meaning that Muslims did not work out the ethical imports of traditions like that in a systematic and analytical fashion. Um, it, it, it is not a mutawatir, it is an ahad, so it is a singular transmission. But nevertheless, nevertheless, traditions that as Surah Al-Talaq itself, in, the potential of the tradition depends on the agent engaging to the tradition, meaning the reader. Surah Al-Talaq itself, as I, as inshallah I'll show you, Surah Al-Talaq can be read in an extremely legalistic fashion about waiting periods, and about what seems to us in the modern age as a fairly small issue. The wife's staying, having a right to being in the marital home during the waiting period, which is more or less three months, which doesn't seem like a big deal, in the modern age particularly. Or, depending on the reader, Surah Al-Talaq can be read as having a moral thrust, as having an ethical momentum, that it is not really just about waiting periods or about periods of pregnancy, but about a moral trajectory. But I'll, I'll save that till the end. So, okay. So, you either stay with them in goodness or you separate decently and in a, in a moral fashion. And Surah Al-Talaq adds the issue of ishhad, of witnessing. So to that people who are udul, people who are of just moral character, would have to also bear witness. Now, again, Muslim jurists paused at this issue and wrestled with it. The idea of bringing in witnesses for a talaq met with an incredible amount of social resistance. A man, when a man 
would often do the talaq, he would simply pronounce a talaq, and it was, if the wife contests it, the man would swear on it. The idea of a talaq having to be pronounced before witnesses was not done. And indeed, in the interpretive processes of Islamic law, most Muslim jurists said, despite this verse, that a talaq does not have to be witnessed. So how did they understand the verse? What they understood the verse as, some of them, is that it is not the talaq that would have to be witnessed, but that if they go back together, if there is a revocation of the talaq, that would be witnessed. So, does the talaq have to be witnessed? Does the revocation of the talaq have to be witnessed? Interestingly, most jurists said that while witnessing is recommended, that neither the talaq nor the revocation is required to be witnessed. That's the mezhab of the majority. Although, notice the language itself. This is, we are at verse 3, right? Um, and so let two persons of moral probity or non-probity from among you, among you witness uh, and do yourselves bear true witness before God. In other words, don't lie. Yeah. And then, this is underscored, and thus are admonished to all who believe in God on the last day. Uh, so this is what you are indeed advised to do if you are believers. Some have said, this is, you, you, you encounter among the Hanafis especially, they say that talaq without witnesses is valid, but it's considered talaq al-bid'ah. It's a valid talaq, but sinful, that whoever does it bears some sin. And that talaq that is witnessed is known as talaq al-sunnah. So if you've ever heard that expression, talaq al-bid'ah, talaq al-sunnah, that's what it's talking about. That talaq al-bid'ah is legally valid, but sin. Talaq al-sunnah is legally valid, and it is not a sin. But again, as I said, it just depends on the school of thought, because it's a hotly debated issue. Okay. Then, again, the extrapolation upon this, وَمَنْ يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا وَيَرْزُقُهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يَحْتَسِبُ وَمَنْ يَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ فَهُوَ حَسْبُهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بَالِغُ أَمْرِهِ قَدْ جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدْرًا So notice here the layering in this matter. So, and who places their trust 
in Allah knows before that. Um, and unto one who is who has taqwa, is conscious of God, God will provide a way out. Muhammad Asad puts in brackets out of unhappiness, which is a, a fair interpretation, and will provide for them in a manner beyond all expectation. And for anyone that places their trust in God, meaning that God alone is sufficient for them. Now again, we have um, reports There are some reports that say that a man went to the prophet and complained um, that poverty and that he has many children and that he's poor, and that the prophet said, be conscious of God and be patient. Um, and that this was the reason for the revelation of and so on. There is another report that Auf bin Malik al Ashjai um, goes to the Prophet and says that his son was captured in a raid by a, a tribe that is hostile to Muslims and that his mother is crying and is in despair. Um, and that the Prophet said, The Prophet advises him to him and his wife to consistently repeat la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah there is no strength and power save in Allah and that they persevere in doing this and when they do this they find their son coming back what happened is that their son not only escaped captivity but managed to escape captivity driving he usurped or he took sheep that belonged to the tribe that caught, that captured him. And by the laws of war of the time, that sheep is fair game. Uh, if if um, you are with people who have open hostility with you. And that when the... Um, um, when an Ajna'i goes to the Prophet and said, my son returned uh, with the sheep of the enemy, the, the Prophet says, keep the sheep. Um, and that then that was the occasion for, for the revelation of um, There is another narrative that has always been has always touched me um, that that narrative doesn't, it says that there was no particular occasion 
for the revelation of this. But that it was revealed, and that after it was revealed, the Prophet ﷺ was sitting with Abu Dharr al-Ghafari, and that he kept repeating, and kept repeating it, so often and so long until Abu Dhar, who was a young man, fell asleep. And then when he woke up, the Prophet ﷺ looked at him and said, Abu Dhar, if people only knew that in this statement, whoever is conscious of God, God will, let, will create a way out for them. لَكَفَتْهُمْ it would have been sufficient for them, meaning it would be a means of liberation for them. Uh, is similarly that whoever relies on Allah is is Allah is sufficient for them. Uh, Al-Ghazali in his Ihya says, I believe so, although I might be mistaken, that, um, I didn't write it so I'm going to have to paraphrase it, that basically Allah knows that Allah knows that human beings um, will are wedded to the idea of causation and that human beings their immediate inclination is to attribute power to the whoever leverages causation in their life and that to internalize that in fact, despite the appearance that power is held by that who leverages causation to truly internalize that ultimately no causation takes place unless Allah allows it to, to take place. That the amount of repose and strength and that Allah didn't, doesn't say this to encourage a tawakkul, not to encourage people to be fatalistic, but to comfort the hearts of people in accepting fate in their life after they do all they can surrender the rest to Allah. His passage was, or the passage that I think was Ghazali's, was so nicely put. Um, anyway, okay. Now, notice, because we'll come back to this, that this is, however, despite the reports of occasions for revelations, which Again, I, I believe that these were historical events. Whether they in fact were the occasion for the revelation of I very much doubt that it was because uh, 
Al-Aj'ai's son was captured. We have many different reports that his son was abducted and captured and that this traumatized the family. And in fact, that they kept saying la hawla la quwwata illa billah until, and we have a very emotional description of his mother crying and running to her husband and falling to the ground and kissing his feet and then he falls to the ground and he kisses her head and her hand and her feet and so on. And so I, I do believe all of that was historical. But I don't believe that this was the occasion for but notice that it is said in the context of divorce because we'll come back to this. And in the often traumatizing and traumatic context of divorce, and again, that who relies on Allah, who counts on Allah, Allah is sufficient. It is said in the context of divorce. In Surah Al-Talaq, and I'll come back to this because it is, I think, critical. Okay. Then Surah Al-Talaq moves on to address what was not addressed in Surah Al-Baqarah, and this is verse 4, that those, those who are beyond menstrual age. Now, in Islamic law, there's long discussions about what is beyond menstrual age. And interestingly, a lot of Muslim jurists said 55 and 60, which Allahu alam, you know, in one of the things I, I read once a, a book about the his, history of menstruation, and it, it it had some remarkable information about how the the cycle of menstruation actually shifted among human populations. That it would come that, that just because we experience it in certain ages in the modern age, that that's not not necessarily true throughout human history. Um, of course, the author tied it to evolutionary things, but, but uh, you know, he had a lot of compelling evidence about environmental factors um, and psychological factors, and anyway, it was very interesting. Anyway, um, so, but these are, even their discussions about um, at a particular age, the critical matter legally is individual case by case. That those who are beyond menstruating age and those who you are not sure about in other words, you're not sure if they reach menstrual age. And those who have not, who do not menstruate. Now, there's a legal issue that you should know about because, again, law is too important to be left for people who are not 
intellectually sophisticated. In, you find in the classical tradition what a lot of jurists say about those who have not menstruated, that this refers to, to wives who are too young to menstruate. And of course, you put it in the wrong hands in the modern age, and immediately you get an idiot that says, well, see, this is evidence that you can marry women before puberty. But the very discussion about is incomplete because we know that as a legal matter that you're, you're not supposed to marry someone who is pre-puberty. Although some, in, again, in the classical tradition said you can marry but you don't consummate until puberty. But the language itself doesn't necessarily talk about pre-puberty girls, but rather, as Muhammad Asad, I, I think he takes uh, the same. Let's check. Um, or say, uh, he says. Um, their waiting period, if you have any doubt about it, shall be, and, and for those who are with child, no, no, wait a minute. Now such as human and beyond the major, as well as those who do not have courses, their waiting period, if you have any, oh, he says, those who do not have courses, oh, yeah, he says, for any physiological reason, whatever, that, yeah, the language could bear the meaning that those who do not menstruate for any reason, that taking it to mean pre-puberty, which creates all types of legal issues, because whether you can marry pre-puberty girls, even in the classical tradition, is a serious issue. But clearly, the context is talking about cases of doubt where you are not sure about whether a woman continues to menstruate or cases where menstruation, for whatever reason, seems to have stopped. In both of these cases, the waiting period is three months. Not three cycles, but three months. Now, and if a woman is pregnant, her waiting period is her pregnancy. There is a, um, a tradition, let's see if I... Um, um, I think 
particular name was Subay'a al-Aslamiyya. Uh, that Subay'a was pregnant and but no, Subay'a's case was her husband died and after her husband died um, okay, so this is the case of a widow. Sorry. Remembered the wrong example. Um, because she she waits 40 days after she gives pregnancy, after she gives birth. But anyway, for a woman divorced during her pregnancy, her waiting period is her pregnancy. Which, I mean, interestingly, again, going back to the issue of the waiting period, uh, gets into these discussions, you know, what is the purpose of a waiting period? Is it as a cooling off period? Um, or is it a to make sure that there is the, there is no child to emerge, which, as we talked about, then run, runs into these countervailing considerations. Okay. Then, in emphasis in verse five that. That this is indeed what Allah is reminding you to observe and that if you follow in observing these laws then your that, that your reward is with Allah um, you know, or a vast reward or abundant reward. Okay. Then we come to verse 6. Askinuhum min haysu sakantum min wujdukum wala tudarruhun lutudayyiku alayhin. That Verse six. Okay. So those for the normal way that this is understood, meaning all the tafsirs say that during the waiting period, then they should live in a manner that they are accustomed to, and that you are not allowed to either harass them or to um, reduce the standard of living. So in other words, you can't say, well, you know, during the waiting period, let me cut her expenses in half or her whatever she's accustomed to in half. And if they are pregnant, then you are obligated to spend on them until they give birth. And this obligation to, of caretaking continues during suckling. Now, believe it or not, we get into some very complicated legal discussions 
as to the rest of this verse وَإِن تَعَاصَرْتُمْ فَسَطُرْدِعُ لَهُ أُخْرَى that if for whatever reason the mother is not the one that is going to be breastfeeding the child then you hire someone else to breastfeed a wet nurse to breast the, 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 the child with a huge debate about what what does ta'asartu mean in the Islamic legal texts they get into these discussions about well is this verse talking about a mother saying well I will breastfeed but the my support during my breastfeeding period has to be X Y this amount and then the husband says no I'm not willing to pay you this amount so then the mother says well I'm not gonna breastfeed them that's what in the classical tradition you find debates about I don't believe that that's what it's talking about at all but we'll come back to this okay then the proviso لِيُنْفِقَ ذُو سِعَةٍ مِنْ سِعَةٍ وَمَنْ قُدْرِ عَلَيْهِ رِزْقُهُ فَلْيُنْفِقْ مِمَّا أَتَاهُ اللَّهِ لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا مَا أَتَاهَ This is seven. سَيَجْعَلُ اللَّهُ بَعْدَ عُسْرٍ يُسْرًا Okay. So then the qualification that each according to their means and that, as a legal matter, one should not bear beyond what they're able to do. And a reminder that if you are in hardship, just remember that it is in Allah's hands to resolve your hardship and bring ease after hardship. Then at that point, notice now verse 8. Then it seems to shift gears to talk about communities that are disobedient towards God's commands and that these communities are then punished severely. And in the interpretive tradition, there is a tendency to take up to verse 7 and have rather these very technical discussions and say, well, this is the legally relevant part. And then to say that Surah Al-Talaq moved on to a new topic after verse 7. So from 8 to the rest, that Surah Al-Talaq went on to talk about what Allah talks about often in the Quran, and that is the punishment of those who are not God-conscious.
Now, this is a wonderfully, a wonderfully technical and technocratic and mechanical way of dealing with Surat al-Talaq. Because we have a discussion about waiting period, periods of purity, menstrual cycles. We have a discussion about ikhraj, residing in the marital home during waiting period. We have a discussion about the waiting period of a woman whose menstrual cycle is not clear either because she's ill or because um, she is uh, post-menstrual age, which is three months instead of three cycles. And we have a discussion about the waiting period of a pregnant woman we have a discussion about the right to support during the waiting period, right to support during pregnancy, right to support during suckling, suckling period. And if the mother is not suckling, then the who, then the, how the husband has to bear the, or the ex-husband in this case, has to bear the cost of finding a wet nurse. And halos. And then... But what we miss in this is what was, what was the social function of Surat al-Talaq? What was the moral function as well of Surat al-Talaq? Put differently, what were the real live issues that Surat al-Talaq was dealing with? We already know, anyone that reads in Islamic history, we know that it was, marriage was a social institution. It was quite rare for an individual to marry an individual. Families married families. And it was quite rare for a person to be, to remain without marriage. What was quite widespread, as I said, was that you could claim right the moment a divorce takes place, you say to the wife, matters have ended, I've pronounced the law, Matters have now ended, go back home. And we know that after Surah Al-Baqarah, although Surah Al-Baqarah addresses these issues, and as we saw, addresses it in a significant portion, it is undeniable that there remained an enormous amount of social resistance. And it is also undeniable that husbands couldn't, the families of husbands couldn't get it. Well, if I've divorced her and she then now goes back to her family, as we Arabs have been doing it for centuries, 
she goes back to become the financial responsibility of her family and her family will find her a new husband. What's the problem? That, that's what happens. And if the family doesn't find her a new husband, quite frankly, the Prophet did. In other words, the, the seerah of the Prophet, we haven't talked about the seerah, but it is remarkable how often the Prophet or his wives take it upon themselves to get people married. And especially the have-nots and the people without roots in society, i.e. mawali. This is another topic that amazingly no Muslim has 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 research has talked about although it's just it stares stares you right in the face in the tradition that the Prophet and his family took it upon themselves to get the Mawali married Mawali are the outsiders so Surah Al-Talaq then comes again and anchors in number of principles. And it is in my humble view that the principles that are far more important than the technical mechanical arguments about the law. And in fact, I think and Allah knows best, but I think that any attempt to navigate the law without first understanding the moral trajectory and the ethical principles will, without fail, be a futile or a mistaken process. So first, Educating this community about the moral responsibility of talaq. Pre-Islamic Arabs related to talaq only to the extent that there was a social cost because of the family connection. So what I mean is that today I like my wife's family. If there's a feud that comes up between my wife's family tomorrow and my family, I immediately divorce my wife. That was typical and witnessed in numerous situations. Two, today I am married to my wife and my wife is from a rich, powerful family. Tomorrow, my wife's family loses its prestige. Immediately, my mother will come and say, change your wife. She's no longer from a, an impressive family. Immediately, I divorce and remarry. Divorce was not seen as a big deal. It was 
an important or unimportant depending on the social dynamics implicated in a divorce. It was in fact the reason that stories where women, and it was typically women, when a divorce is initiated for emotional reasons, it was typically by, by women, not by men. So we don't have many reports of a man who says, I can't stand my wife. The reports that we have are divorces that take place because a man has found, or the family of a man more likely, has found a better marriage for that man. And they know that a second marriage is not possible because of the family of the woman that he's married to. So first, this is a very critical element that by emphasizing the whole issue of waiting period and the whole matter of Allah might make something transpire elsewhere where the Quran says and perhaps you will love something and it is not good for you or you will uh, hate something and it is in fact good for you this whole attitude about a waiting period and a, 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 a is and the whole the, the whole thrust of the traditions about how much Allah dislikes divorce was a moral a readjusting the moral attitude of society towards the institution of divorce. Divorce is a serious matter. It is not to be, and that is a part that I've left out, um, is this whole complicated matter as to whether, for instance, uh, if, uh, if you pronounce, whether you can pronounce all three divorces in, in, a, in a single waiting period. So in other words, if, if you're going to divorce someone three times, do you have to wait and pronounce the divorce after three waiting periods? Or can you all do it in one time? And many jurists relying on, you know, we don't need to get into that, a long set of traditions and reports and so on, a lot of the traditions clearly shows that the Prophet absolutely dislikes the idea of a talaq al-ba'in, meaning a, a, a three divorces uttered in, so in, and in fact the Prophet in, in, in some of the traditions says that if, if he if he could, he would prohibit men from uttering more than a single divorce at, at a single time. So in other words, again, that theme of that divorce is very serious. And, and all the traditions that accompany Surah Al-Talaq, as well as the discussions on Talaq in Surah Al-Baqarah, about not that the worst among you or the 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 the, uh, 
those who are shunned among you, that those that are shunned by Allah are those who swear by the divorce. Swearing by divorce is when you say um, which by the way still survives in Arab culture till today. So despite Islam condemning the practice, amazingly, I mean centuries later it still survives. Where a man says, you know, I swear by God that, you know, this and such, or I will divorce my wife. Um, a, 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 a surviving, um, a surviving um, uh, inheritance of the, the sort of, um, the, the attitudes that used to exist about divorce from pre-Islamic times, the whole institution is swearing by divorce, which is is uh, is very curious institution because you don't find it in other cultures. And um, a lot of modern Muslims uh, don't realize how many traditions attributed to the Prophet condemn this practice and describe it as impious and sinful. So, so that is the first thing. And then forcing the participants or getting those who are in engaged in the dynamics of a divorce to reflect upon the fact that it is not entirely up to you. Think about what Allah would want from you. And And although so many interpreters take that expression, la tadri amra, that you don't know the the the, the that you don't you, you Allah may well bring make something transpire. A lot of the interpreters took this as talking exclusively to the men. And it is obviously talking to men in the sense that it is saying, before you insist on a divorce, think that you don't know what is blessed and what is not blessed. And this is a serious matter. And it is in the hands of Allah that if today you think that there's no way forward, in fact, there might be. But it is also clearly, clearly speaking to the women that if you believe, because for both parties, that this is a reason to despair, If the, the, the trauma of the situation impacts you in a way that makes you think that 
either one way or the other makes you think in absolute and draconian terms, the very nature of what is demanded of a Muslim is to always be moderate in the way that they deal with the challenges of life, neither taken to jubilation and um, uh, you know, bombastic claims, nor to despair that it is always in Allah's hand. And if today looks dark to you, tomorrow in Allah's hands is, could be a completely different matter. The second thing that I think morally was quite intentional is which Muslim jurists struggled with but couldn't couldn't see what was the point of it. The reference to these biyut as beauty hin as their homes, talking about women, which is very alien to the way that they thought. The home was brought, provided by the husband, belonged to the husband, and, and that determined everything. You can't ignore the fact that the Quran deals with this sort of overcomes that moral barrier by in fact referring to these homes as women or as the homes as beauty beauty hin in the feminine form. Bear this point in mind because I'll come back to it. Then three, the idea of a witnessed divorce, which was resisted by, by the culture in which the Quran was revealed, that a further obstacle and a further eroding away in the, um, the sort of, the, the often, purely discretionary fashion, that divorce was undertaken. And in fact, it is underscored that that in fact, it, it, this is what Allah is advising you to do, despite the fact that it was sort of diluted in Islamic law and largely ignored by, by so many jurors. Here's the thing. If Allah in Surah Al-Talaq comes and says, there's a waiting period, don't return them back to their families, during the waiting period, if they're pregnant, you can't turn them out of their homes during the 
pregnancy, you are financially responsible during the waiting period. The moral trajectory of this, if you step back, was the adding of rights to women where there were no rights. It's, you don't have an example of rights existing and the Quran coming and taking these rights away from women. The Quran is adding rights. But here is the question. Is there anything in Surah Al-Talaq that you see that says that a woman may have a right to be in the marital home beyond the waiting period? Do you see a prohibition against women being in the marital home beyond the waiting period? Do you see, put it differently, or in a different manner, do you see anything there that would prohibit an obligation of support beyond the waiting period or an obligation of support beyond the pregnancy period? In a trajectory of rights, you look at the ethical lesson and you see the law as a project, as an ethical project. So, if the principle here is that divorce is very serious and divorce should be witnessed, if the state, if we come and say in the modern age, well, before you engage in a divorce, there is a prescribed counseling period. Is that necessarily against the Quran? If you say, well, in this age, it is an extremely relevant issue whether turning someone out of their home, whether there is a family for the woman to go back to. And there, if there is no family to go back to, or as, in, as some have happened in actual some Muslim jurisdictions like Iran, whether we're going to actually look at the financial contributions, meaning including unpaid labor, that a woman has made to the marital home and that, that enters into our assessment of ownership of a home. If you, if you look at these laws as the ceiling for rights, then although they were very significant when revealed, we would be kidding ourselves to say that they were at all significant in our day and age. Then, they, then if that's the ceiling, then they're not significant at all. 
But if you look at the moral message, the law as an anecdote, that Allah is teaching us, well, here's how I empowered women at this time. Now, the burden is on you to figure out how empowerment works. Then it's a very different attitude. But then, notice, if this is how you take your approach to law, then the first half of the surah connects seamlessly and rationally and ethically to the second half of the surah. Why? Because then the second half, look at the second half. What, what is the focus? What does it focus on in the second half? Okay, so whoever turns away from the commandments of, of the sustainer will be uh, that it is complete loss. You will suffer enormously if you ignore the, the teachings of your Lord. Okay. That Allah, you know, be conscious of God. Don't ignore what God says. That Allah has sent you a prophet that not just gives you a remembrance, but takes you out of darkness to light. Okay? And that as a, and, and from darkness to light. Now, okay, pause and think. If Allah is saying waiting period, right to support for waiting period, waiting period, pregnancy, right to support in pregnancy, that is your ceiling. Does this sound like taking us from darkness to light? But if in fact Allah is educating us, look, here's how I empowered at this time. Learn the lesson. If you ignore the instructive dynamic, if you ignore law as instruction, put it simply, wouldn't it make a lot of sense if what Surah Al-Talaq is telling us, and I invite you, go back and reread it, and reread it again, and then pray on it. Wouldn't it make a lot of sense is what Surah Al-Talaq is telling us. If women in your society, in the dynamics of marital institution, divorce and support, have, do not have meaningful rights, are not taken care of, there is an inadequate dynamic that addresses the concerns of half of your population, then, then you are in dhulumat, then you are in darkness. And if you want to go from darkness to light and not be amrukum khusra, not be in moral failure, then learn the lesson. 
learn the lesson. It's not about the technicalities of waiting period. I'm not saying waiting period is not important. What I'm saying is, is that learn what the moral purpose of Surah Al-Talaq was. But you can only understand that if you understand the historical circumstance that Surah Al-Talaq was addressing and was pushing against. And then it would make perfect sense that why Allah is saying, it's as if, not just in, in, in the first half of Surah Al-Talaq saying, you know, don't forget that these are Allah's hudud. But Allah is saying, and if you fail to understand this lesson, umrukum khusra, you are in a state of moral failure. That's what khusr is. You are, in fact, in a state of zulumat. Then Surah Al-Talaq fits like a harmonious performance. There's no longer the first half and the second half. It is a total package. But Surah Al-Talaq was also note that throughout it anchors the principle that being the law, being responsive to the actual financial abilities for better or worse of people is critical. The law to say, well, you know, we have one or two or three standards of support, and that's it. Without regard, not just strikes you as, as unfair, but in fact results in a great deal of unfairness. And the emphasis in the moral instruction of Surah Al-Talaq, keep in mind that there is no such thing as, well, in this situation, lying is halal. Which, by the way, divorced couple, Muslim and non-Muslim, do all the time. When it comes to divorce, even the most pious people, you find them thinking, believing, that lying, concealing their assets, lying about their income, lying about what their financial ability is, is halal. And Surah Al-Talaq clearly says, no, it's not. That, in fact, it is shahada. It is a form of shahada. Everything that you engage in. But a further step. That people do all types of things in a divorce because they think that they have a right to stick it to someone, to act out their anger, to act out their frustration, to act out their grievances. But Allah comes and tells you, مَنْ يَطَّقِ اللَّهَ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا That in fact, if you want to have something as a real anchor, it is not about the furniture, it is not about the property, it is not about this or that, it is about taqwa Allah. And that 
with a very humanistic, a very tender reminder that often when you, anyone that has worked with diverse couples will tell you that they often fight as if it's the end of the world, as if their life stops here. The, the divorce, you know, the, 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 the way they combat during divorce, it's as if there is no life beyond it. And Allah comes with this re remarkable, psychologically responsive reminder. In fact, it is at moments like these that you have to remember that Hasbukallah, that Allah is enough for you. And that the way out, or that if you are truly with Allah, although including marriage and divorce and all the trauma related to it, is in Allah's hand. that the morality of despairing people, because this is, the ethics of despair is often brutal. People, when they despair, they often let go of all ethics. This is one of the key lessons of Surah Al-Talaq. There is no place for that. It is, in fact, not the attitude of a believing human being. What time is it? Okay. We're close. Oh, I would be... Also, this whole issue of... Notice the emphasis throughout in Surah Al-Talaq on not using Talaq as a means of abuse. That the repeated emphasis on not using Talaq as a means of Tadiq or means of Idha' means of either harassing someone harming someone that because it is remarkable but you even see pious people who for whatever reason think suddenly the laws change or the rules change and they may stick it to their ex in the processes of Torah and that that's not haram one of the key messages of Surah Al-Talaq, the whole emphasis of on Adam al-Tadiq is again a message of empowerment for women. It's as if saying, again, you can see this as a ceiling. So say, well, you know, I see men as having the power to divorce and basically it's saying to men, you know, just don't abuse your discretion. Or you could see it as a moral objective that we, Allah is empowering us 
to do whatever we can to remove anything in the process that could lead to oppression, lack of dignity, and hardship. And that if we don't do so, then we have failed in our moral mission and that then we have not emerged from zulumat to nur. The role of the reader is key. Let me recast it for you. I could be a reader to Surah Al-Talaq and let's say I am a grumpy misogynist. And I look at Surah Al-Talaq and say, well, ya ayyuhan nabiyyu idha talaqtum nisa Ah, yes, men have the right to divorce women. Isma is in hands of men, very clear. After all, it says, Prophet, if you divorce women, he's talking to men. The assumption is Isma is in the hands of women. That can never change. Oh, don't kick them out of their homes. Okay, during the Idda period. Okay, during three months. But then after that, clear implication is, once the three months are over, out with you. And it doesn't say anything about send her back to her family. I could throw her in the street. I could be married to her 30 years and then I throw her in the street. She lives in a homeless shelter or, a shelter or a tent. I don't care. Doesn't tell me care. It just says, don't use the Idda period to harass her. Okay, I won't divorce her and then remarry her one day before. I'll just, I'll be very nice. I'll say, I divorce you. I'll leave the home. I'll send her food. And it says not to throw it, so okay, fine, I'll be very nice. But immediately, once the waiting period is over, out with you, out in the street. You're not my concern anymore. Oh, and then it says, if your wife is pregnant, okay, my second wife is pregnant, so I'll wait until she, the, then the minute after she delivers, okay, don't go back to your the marital home, it's over. Now, go live in the street. I, if you want to keep the child with you in the street, fine. If you want to give him to me, I'll take care of him. I'll, have, I'll even hire a wet nurse. See, Surah Al-Talaq says, hire a wet nurse. The reader. The reader. An immoral reader will produce an immoral results. Don't kid yourself. Because Muslims come and act like, no, it, it, it's the text who, the ethical reader will read and will find the ethical message and will see this as completely from a different perspective. It is an educational document that furthers fairness equity, humanity, kindness, mercy, understanding. The law, the positive law that you find there is not the ultimate objective. It is simply a step on the way. Okay. There is an interesting issue uh, about Surah Al-Talaq that has nothing to do with any of the stuff we've discussed. 
Um, look at verse 12. الله الذي خلق سبع سماوات ومن الأرض مثلهن seven heavens and we've said before that seven heavens seven could mean number multitude in in Arabic so seven didn't necessarily mean the number seven but notice that when it said and like them in the earth And this goes back to, you know, the old medieval issue. A lot of interpreters read this as a reference to, like there are seven earths, there are uh, seven and seven heavens, that there are seven layers of the earth. And they even consistent with medieval belief that the earth is between the layers of the earth are water and air space and that the the inner layers of the earth are all inhabited by creatures so you read in Qurtubi for instance and in many other tafsir, because it's also in Tabari, it's in Ibn Kathir, that um, the, um, Ibn Abbas is reported to have said that Allah has created layers of the earth, and each layer is an Adam of Eve, Adam and Eve, like the Adam of Eve of the outer layer. And in each layer, there is a, a Prophet Ibrahim, like the Prophet Ibrahim of the outer layer. And in each layer, there is a Prophet Musa and Isa and Muhammad, like the Prophets of the outer layer. You might wonder, what's the importance of this debate? Well, okay. So, if... <clears throat> The assumption was there are beings living in these layers and the, these beings are either angels or jinn or whatever and that they had their own Adam and Eve, they had their own prophets. So the prophecy of the Prophet Muhammad is binding upon only the outer layer of the earth. Okay? Now, we know, I think it's a fair assumption, I'm not a geologist, but I have a reasonable education to say that there are no beings living in the, you know, the hollow earth thesis and all that stuff. But some understood this, and this is actually somewhat of a dangerous uh, concept, but some scholars understood this as when, when Allah says وَمِنَ الْأَرْضِ مِثْلَهُمْ and like them in the earth, not as layers in, in the depth of the earth, but as a reference to the continents on the surface of the earth. 
Now, but if it is a reference to the continents of the earth, then what Ibn Abbas is reported to have said, does it still hold true that there is an Adam and Eve to, in every continent? and a prophet Ibrahim in every continent, and a prophet Musa in every continent? Because the implication of this is dangerous, that then the prophet's message would not be universal. And if you read in the Kalam tradition, among the things that they wrestle with is precisely this. Now, I think, clearly, um, when Allah says, it's exactly as when Allah says, layers in the heavens. Meaning, there are not the number seven, but that there are, that you, you look at the ground, and, and at least at their time, they didn't realize that the, the, the earth is like uh, uh, peels on top of each other. You know, it, it is, there is a core and then there are literally layers. And that, th this is what Allah is talking about. And that this entire debate that Orientalists have jumped on about beings on the surface and the seven continents and whether the, uh, the message of Muhammad is only constrained or restricted to the continent in which he exists, or whether the, the or, or the, the the popular belief that still exists in some Muslim cultures that the heart or the the, the depth of the earth is inhabited by jinn, all of that is a historical curiosity, not of any real serious import in our day and age. Um, so I'm, don't get accused of uh, rushing and jumping anything. Let me just make sure I didn't leave anything out. Our, although these notes are quite old, so and I don't really understand everything I wrote um, in them. I can't always read my handwriting. Um, and th this handwriting is about 10 years old. So it's sometimes very difficult to read what the heck I was writing. I don't know. Notice when it says, وَلَا عَلَيْهِمْ This is in verse 6. Um, and then it goes on with ver in verse 6, Let's see how he translated it in six, and if you find it difficult, I'm Yeah, so what, yeah, Muhammad Asa translates it, and take counsel with one another in a fair manner. Um, some of the, the, the best discourses that I've read extrapolating upon that 
what Allah loves if there is a divorce and not just uh, on the matter of whether uh, a wife is going to breastfeed or you need a wet nurse or whatever. بما هو معروف غير منكر وليقبل بعضكم من بعض المعروف والجميل that conduct your affairs in a divorce by standards of decency and let the, the attitude that you must have towards one of our, one another one one another is to force yourself to accept from one from one another what is good and what is beautiful that this that that if Divorce is inescapable and unavoidable. Make it a point to be a beautiful human being upon the dissolution of a marriage as you were supposed to be a beautiful human being within a marriage. Again, what struck me is the moral trajectory. A beautiful human being within a marriage, a beautiful human being upon the dissolution of a marriage. What a standard. Okay, alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. All right, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, so we, we took a break and uh, hopefully if you guys have questions, please send them through the chat. Um, and I, I ask people here to start collecting questions. Um, this, this was amazing and I, I want to um, share what our, some of our brainiacs reacted to here. And um, I got some help on closing remarks from um, someone here who shall re remain, well actually it's Joe. <laughs> Joe is our brilliant editor-in-chief. So this is so striking, right? This was 12 verses um, and you know, as, as Joe so um, succinctly pointed out, this, what, what we just covered in 12 verses really sums up the entirety of what we've been doing here, which um, is the idea, number one, of coherence. So it's not that the chapter lives in two parts, but there's a coherent message. Um, and that there is, you know, obviously a moral trajectory. I mean, there's a message of, you know, where, you know, a time and time again, I mean, in every single story we've covered and, and everything is just like, um, you know, how do we build on goodness and, you know, and create something much better than what already exists. And then the importance of obviously ethics over law. So, um, it, you know, easily can, you know, as, as Schiff pointed out, could be read as just, you know, technical law, but there's a much broader ethical message here. And then um, underscoring number four, the morality of the reader, you know, the, the reader as the moral agent, and as, you know, Shek has written in many places, 
um, you know, this, this text is only as good as the person <coughs> interpreting the text. Um, and alhamdulillah, it's, it's so beautiful. And I think it's so exciting to see like this, um, you know, extension really of, of Surah Baqarah um, and the sophistication and nuance with which, you know, additional points were made and ultimately the empowerment of women, which is so, of course, beautiful. Um, I'll add to, to Joe's um, uh, comments that things that really, really jumped out at me was like um, the idea that human beings are so um, attracted to the point of, about causation and I mean, all, so much of um, the ultimate message is how everything really comes down to your trust in God. And, you know, and this is like every single message that we've learned, and, you know, and your hardships, your, your, you know, good things, everything comes back to internalizing the idea that um, it's not about, you know, scientific causation. It, it's about ultimately what Allah is, you know, it's your trust in Allah and, and that, you know, whether things are so difficult and ugly, you know, as in a divorce, um, that there's goodness there that God can present something else for you um, and that God is enough. Um, and that even in, in despite all of that darkness, God wants for you to be, you know, the best of yourself, this beautiful human being living on this beautiful moral trajectory. Um, and you know, and remembering your ultimate reliance. Um, and then ultimately just the, the idea of liberation and empowerment and that, that beautiful um, report that you shared that people don't talk about, um, about how the most beloved of, of um, most of what Allah loves is freeing a person from oppression, which could be understood in this context as, you know, um, if you are in a, a you know, relationship of oppression, whether it's, you know, a marriage that causes you to be, you know, like a slave or abused, that, you know, it's not enough to just say divorce is the most hated of the halal, but the flip side, you know, which, again, underscores um, the complexity of human nature and the importance of us as intellects um, and moral people to, to take seriously what God is saying, um, to take seriously each person's situation, um, and to be, you know, very creative and, and sensitive and empathetic um, towards what is the, the best way to um, find a beautiful solution, which in effect is your book, Search for Beauty. You know, it's like with any given situation, what is the most beautiful path? God is beautiful, God loves beauty. So, I think that, I mean, what's always striking is just how everything comes together. It's just, you know, like the whole approach is so consistent. The message is so consistent and it's so beautiful when you walk us through these suras and help us just, you know, again, time and time again, have that same message reinforced. Liberation, empowerment, beauty, goodness, trust in God, um, you know, the wholeness of the message, the moral trajectory. Um, and, and the potential, right? So even recognizing that when you're talking about a certain ceiling, you know, it's not about the ceiling, it's about the potential for more. I mean, you could even read into this, like when you ask the question, 
um, do you see a prohibition against allowing a woman, for example, to stay in her marital home way past you know, the three years? I mean, I could imagine that someone could read that as, well, if you can afford it, let her stay in her marital home until she passes and you know, let her have her peace um, because that's very beautiful. If a woman has been married to you for you know, her entire life and she has no, you know, she's never had a job, she's just taken care of the kids and home and now she's in her 50s or 60s or 70s and you want to divorce her and she would basically end up homeless on the street, well, let her live in the marital home if you can afford it until she passes. I mean, that could be, that this reading is, is very open to that as well. So it's, um, it's just a beautiful um, message of changing attitudes in education. So anyway, thank you so much. I know that we're all just eternally grateful for, I think, the liberation of mind and spirit in, in all of these surahs. So um, let me open it up to questions. I know, I'm sure if you have one, do you want to start? My questions in relation to um, measuring the waiting period by during times of impurity or, or, or cycles of impurity versus cycles of of purity um, isn't the idea that women are impure during menstruation isn't that an import from Jewish law? Yeah, I mean, I but uh, it's more complicated than that because it's the you know we we say impurity, but I, what we mean periods of either tahara or um, periods of hayd. I mean, in 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 Islamic law, the, the, you you say hayd, which means menstruation. Um, so it's not. In, in counting the periods, it's not and the issue is not whether it's pure or impure. The issue is um, that you let three menstrual cycles go by. Um, what was the, the 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 issue about impurity is an In the same way that men could be in an uh, in a state of um, where they they don't have tahara, uh, the the same applies for women um, during menstrual cycle. But I don't I don't want to because that takes us into into, into more you know more complicated issue of the difference between impurity and what is meant by impurity in Islamic law and what is meant by impurity in Jewish law, which gets significantly more complicated and takes us a bit far afield. So, yeah. Anybody here? No? Okay, going once. Twice. You guys can, I'll, I'll check back if anybody is still processing and wants to ask any other questions. Okay, so why don't we go to um, <coughs> interactive group.
Um, this is from Besma. What are the situations when women should be taking divorce from men? In our culture, women are told they will be more pious if they stick to unhappy marriages for the sake of their kids. Uh, you know, the... the um, Kids ha do have the presence of children, of course, complicates things significantly because they they they're not the ones that are responsible for their existence on Earth. It's, it is the parents who make that that initial, I mean, that, that very serious decision and very serious commitment. Um, and once the, the child comes to, to life, um, there, there are, in my view, there's, there's a, an, an implied moral, legal uh, uh, promise that the parents, until this child is able to to fend for themselves and be responsible for themselves, to put them first and to put them ahead of yourself, um, uh, you you are responsible for them. But. There are, at the same time, especially when, because the question it asks about women, um, there are situations where um, in extreme situations where, where the, the mother, as part of her responsibility of taking her the care of her children, has a moral obligation to, especially when the marriage poses a danger to the children, whether the danger is physical or or emotional or spiritual. There are marriages where the children are traumatized by um, an abusive father, um, a traumatizing father a, 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 where it's the persistent the, the existence of, of children uh, in, in, in this context is very unhealthy. But I also uh, children are not, I don't think you do children a lot a, a big favor if they grow up learning that um, it, or witnessing that uh, their mother in humiliating situations or undignified situations. So in other words, when a marriage robs the mother of her dignity where she can't be an example of a dignified woman. Um, 
And so that's another situation. And of course, you know, there are situations where a woman is just so miserable. I mean, and I don't take divorce lightly at all when there are children. Um, so, I mean, it is one thing when you are sacrificing for your children, even sacrificing the the hope for a more fulfilling partner or the hope for a more understanding partner, the hope for a more sensitive partner, uh, you know, a partner that doesn't really fulfill your dreams, but you sacrifice for the, the children. But there are situations where just you literally, the, you find the wife thoroughly miserable and um, where she, uh, even her ability to be a, um, a meaningful human being to her children uh, is seriously compromised. You know, their ability to just even want to face the day. Um, you know, these are the situations I, I, when I've been put in situations, in real life situations where um, married women ask me if they ask my advice and if they have children, the first question I, you know, first set of questions I ask are about abuse and things like that. If, if that doesn't exist, um, you know, I, I would, I would go through, um, the type of questions that really tries to, you know, are, are you, you know, uh, is it really that you just think that the grass is greener on the other side, possibly, you're hoping that maybe you would get someone who's, you know, have better personal attributes or characteristics and so on, is it, you know, understanding that all the trauma that your your children are going to, to go through, uh, is it in the balance of things? Is it something that you have considered seriously? But if it becomes clear that the mother is truly miserable, um, then uh, that is why Allah made talaq halal. Um, it's just, especially, especially in our modern age, where divorced, the children of divorced parents just confront so many um, threats and anxieties, and um, you know, it, 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 the least one can do before embarking upon a divorce decision is to make an informed decision, to, to get an education. In other words, it is, and I, I'm surprised, that it, it shocks me that imams don't do that. To have a, a ready reading list, I've never encountered an imam that will say, well, okay, yeah, but here I recommend reading this book um, to understand what happens to the children in, in a divorce. 
the, the psychological dynamics, the least you can do is to, you know, do your homework to read something like that. Uh, there, there was once a woman who said, well, but I can't read this book because of my husband. If he sees me reading this book, then it will be a huge problem. So she used to read the book in the bathroom um, and, but until she finished it. And she eventually decided upon a divorce. Mm -hmm. But um, but it just, you know, it, it is not... It, it, I, what I always say, I have no answers. No one does. Uh, it is really something that is between you and Allah. My, my job is just to flag all the things, is to help you make an informed decision, a decision that has truly considered everything. But it is also my obligation to respect the decision that an autonomous human being makes once they make it. And, you know, as... Uh, so once a decision is made, I, you know, you know whether I agree with it or not. That's not my, that's not my place. Okay, this question is um, piggybacking off of that question is from Enjem. Um, she wanted to ask about the verse in relation to women using the right to hula or talak al tafwid when they are being abused. Is it sinful for them to stay in abusive situations? And then the um, quote um, from 497, Behold, those whom the angels gather in death while they are still sinning against themselves, the angel will ask, What was wrong with you? They will answer, We were too weak on earth. The angels will say, Was then God's earth not wide enough for you to forsake the domain of evil? For such then the goal is hell, and how evil a, a journey's end. This one. Yeah, you know, situations of istadaf, um, it is, uh, although Muslim theologians have not normally taken it to apply to marriage, uh, but n normally. So normally when they've talked about istadaf, uh, a state of being oppressed, and istadaf uh, is a form of sinning against the self. If there's something you can do about being a mustadaf and you fail to do it. But I do believe that there are situations of istadaf where it, you know, I'm, I'm knowing just how difficult it is and how often women sacrifice for, especially for their children. You know, I'm, I'm, don't take it lightly to say something like um, that it would be sinful, but there are situations that the one, situation that one the, the least one can say about them is that they're just uh, un-Islamic. I mean, a, a woman that is regularly physically assaulted, for instance, um, and uh, her children witness her being beaten. Um, does she have an obligation to free herself? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that is a, a situation of istadaf that is just morally repugnant. Uh, or a, a situation where you live with a tyrant who, once they lose their temper, 
they say, you know, the most foul and degrading and dehumanizing things. And the children grow up always seeing their mother dehumanized and degraded and devalued and, uh, you know, does Istilaf and the moral obligation to free yourself from Istilaf come to mind? Yes, absolutely. There, there are, but I also think we badly be, need as Muslims a, an ethic that provides social support for it, it is often just just having had so many experiences with this to 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 just put the burden on a, a mustadafa to free herself while her all her social context all the, the entire community literally is is demanding that she accepts the state of istadaf and not open her mouth and not object and not protest and everywhere she did. And I'm very much then, I you know, in the same way that in the same surah, the, um, Allah is, is, is condemning those who did not, that those who, who have not thought to seek empowerment. I think a community that that uh, in that ends up validating situations of istilaf is uh, is a um, yeah is a is a is a community that has a serious ethical problem. Um, I, I mean, I wish we 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 perpetuated this ethic communally. That that it is that you have an, an obligation to speak out, to to act, to uphold your dignity, and we will support you. That I think is very important. Along those lines, Joshua asks, "What is the Ummah's responsibility for a wife kicked out of the house, maybe even with the children, if they have nowhere to go?" You see, this is now this this is a really critical issue because I know that um, you know in in especially in traditional settings uh, this happens all the time and the way societies have evolved is that there are plenty of women everywhere that. Once they get married, and especially the longer they get married, their connections to the family, the family no longer thinks of that woman as their responsibility. So, you know, after 10 years of marriage, 20 years of marriage, 30 years of marriage, there is no family for this woman to go back to. And the idea that the family is going to, make, you know, consider it its, its responsibility to get this woman remarried, is doesn't even exist. It's not part of our vocabulary in in the the modern age. 
even remarriage to for a 50-year-old, for instance, is not often part of our vocabulary. Um, very, which again is very different from the historical circumstance um, uh, that existed 1,400 years ago, especially where the, the where the Quran was revealed. Um, add to that that nowadays, you know, you, um, literally, the, even the idea of even a brother being responsible and financially responsible for his sister who's divorced or widowed. Um, you know, it, it largely depends on the family, but in most families, it hardly exists. Or, uh, you know, leave alone uncle or... or so, the, and the answer in the, in the classical tradition, the answer that Muslim jurists would always give if there is no ayin, then the state becomes the ayin. Meaning, if there is no financial support for the, for the woman, um, then the state must step in and perform the role of the woman's family. So the state must support now, interestingly, among a number of Maliki jurists and a number of Hanafi jurists in the later period, so uh, nearly every opinion that I've read like that was post 12th century Hijra. So, um, uh, sorry, um, no, 6th century Hijra, so 12th century AD, where they said, well, you know, in our day and age, we can't guarantee that there is bait and man, there is a treasury that's going to take care of, of such and such of women in these situations. And so they said it is obligatory upon the judge to order the ex-husband to continue support until remarriage or death. And this is evidence that these classical scholars were using their brain and using their ethical facilities. They were, they were analyzing. Um, and that's where things were left because, you know, so nowadays there, there is... Well, most states, in Muslim countries at least, uh, will not step in. It's social network or social laws are, in most Muslim countries, are horrible. Leave alone the idea. And this is a, di a different topic, but part of what happened in the colonial age is that because of the nature of French law, largely the civil law system. In the civil law system, it was believed that the most personal part of the law to a people are their personal laws. Personal laws meaning family law, marriage, divorce, and inheritance. And so as colonialism undid Islamic law because Islamic law was often not 
did not facilitate the colonial aims financially, transactionally. So the ADAT laws in Malaysia, for instance, in Indonesia, uh, often created problems for the colonial financial and market policies that colonial powers wanted. Same thing with Islamic law in Egypt. Uh, the Islamic courts um, aggravated uh, British colonial powers, extremely aggravated them. So they abolished most of Islamic law and created the mixed courts. But borrowing from what was very popular legal theories at the time that said that said the most important you know personal part of people is their family law and uh, inheritance law so what colonial powers did is that they abolished islamic law and then kept is kept islamic family law uh, as the only part of Islamic law that was observed, so they they created they they create they said okay well when it comes to family law you can you can apply Islamic law but everything else you can't apply Islamic law. Well, what this did is that it made Muslims cling on to family law not because marriage, divorce, and inheritance laws are more core to what Sharia is than, let's say, Uqud. No, that, 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 these separations don't exist in Islamic law. But because that's what they were left of their identity. And they, they clung onto family law as basically the last vestige of their native identity and that created a uh, so you know whoever became wanted to 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 get rid of islam uh, as or the or islamic legacy they would try to abolish islamic family law and whoever was pro-islamic legacy they would want to uphold islamic family law so Islamic family law became a turf war of identity, not of actual thinking about social equity or ethical principles or moral principles. So, you know, the minute I hear about a possible change to anything in Islamic family law in Egypt, immediately I know the people responsible for it are the people who don't want Egypt to have anything about, uh, related to Islamic identity. And the changes, whether they make sense or not, really don't matter to me. What matters to me is that I just want to keep that, that at least that little Islamic sliver remaining. Um, so this created all types of bizarre things in Muslim societies where, you know, a, a woman after 30 years of marriage she will be told, you're entitled to one year of support. And, and, and a lot of women can't believe that this is their rights under Sharia law. And, and if they try to change it, immediately everyone cringes up because, oh, you know, okay, so what's next? Are you going to be abolishing talaq altogether? Are we just all going to just have no part of us as Muslims, that is Islamic, whatsoever. Um, 
we um, this is a, a yeah a, 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 anyway so we end up with this very odd situation where on the one hand we're reluctant to come and say it is part of of Sharia the 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 moral law of Sharia that if a woman a woman's right to support should be in direct proportion to the length and the investment of a marriage. That to me is very consistent with Islamic principles. If you've been married one year, you should have a right to support that's different than if you've been married 30 years and you've invested in this marriage 30 years. If, you know, I as a woman supported my husband as he went and made a great career for himself and became, you know, let's say my husband built businesses and now lives in, and then my husband, you know, after becoming very rich comes and says, oh, by the way, you know, I've decided now I'm having a middle age crisis and I'm going to marry someone who's 20 years younger than you are, you're done with. Well, I should have a right to support. That's very different than if I was, you know, busy with my career and had my own bank account and have substantial savings of my own. Um, but we don't even get into these rational discourses because Islamic personal law has become about identity wars, not about um, law or ethics or equity or even public policy or anything. It became about identity wars because Muslim countries still because you know all of this would have been solved if Muslim countries actually were ruled by democracies because then the complexity of always having a ruler that seems to have loyalties that the ruled don't understand and suspect um, if they had democracies then things would be transparent things you know you could <coughs> you don't like your ruler you change your ruler and, and then people would relax about uh, the issue of identity and all of that, you know, it all would be transparent. There would be at least regularized processes to have aired out discussions about important issues like identity and politics and public policy and the role of law and the purpose of law and the purpose of Sharia and so on. Uh, it, it wouldn't be you know, even discourses of Sharia now is, is all about dynamics of power. It, you know, it, it, the, the, the state is always trying to monopolize what everyone says about Sharia, and you are always competing with what the authoritarian state, the way the authoritarian state, authoritarian state wants to monopolize what is thought or said about Sharia which makes for extremely unhealthy situations. So anyone that really cares about whether Sharia makes even rational sense, whether Sharia is even relevant at all in any moral way in the future, would care about whether we have despotism or not, because despotism corrupts everything.
Okay, before we move on, um, is there a thicker for this to wear? Well, yeah, it is. What area is it? about to The prophet, you know, so mm -hmm. what is it? Mm -hmm. Look at the other one, the brother, what is it? Yeah, it, it is uh, for the, the, the end of what you don't read, I'm sorry, <laughs> forgot. Uh, the end of four and, and five. And then five. In English, what would be the start of number four? That's two. Huh? Four and five. That's two. That's two. You say that's two? Verse two. Verse two? No. It's the end of verse four. What's the English? Can you translate? Oh, man, you talk Oh, 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 I'm reading, oh, I'm thinking of Amani Yataqla Yaj'allahum and Amrihi Yusra. And, uh, oh, 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 sorry, 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 okay. Um, so, okay, no, it is, it is the end of four. Amani Yataqla Yaj'allahum and Amrihi Yusra. But, Amani Yataqla Yaj'allahum Akhraja, this is the one I'm reading, the end of two uh, is the one that the Prophet Rasulullah kept repeating. Oh, okay. I, I used the end of four. What's the English for where it starts? Uh, what do you mean? What it end starts? Of what, what's the? Oh, it, well, that whoever fears God or whoever is conscious of God, Allah facilitates this path. Okay, great. Because I because you needed Allah's facilitation to understand the surah. Not not necessarily Allah to get you out of the bind. That was the reasoning behind it. Okay, so we're we're in a little bit of a quandary because we have we're pretty much out of time and we still have some really good questions. So no, maybe, go ahead. maybe I can just let me read all of them and then you can decide how if you want to do a speed answer or you want to just answer certain okay. ones. Okay. Um, one, Salaamu Alaikum, is a man legally allowed to remarry during the waiting period or is it only the woman? Um, no, that's easy. Man is not allowed to marry, remarry during the waiting period. Okay, that's easy. Um, then from Huda, uh, Salam and Jazakallah Khair, what advice do you have for women who are interested in reconciliation or if they divorce, they want to divorce beautifully, but their husbands do not want to behave beautifully? That's one. Um, another question <clears throat> is about um, uh, the... Islamic uh, children, the custody of the children in the case of divorce. And then um, another one, um, IS-6 has been used, in fact, often by um, imams and others to tell women not to sue for alimony. This is something I've heard repeatedly in large groups of divorced women chats that I'm engaged in. It's literally yeah. horrific. This darkness is engulfing Muslims. And then a question about whether um, there is such thing as um, pre prenuptial um, agreements in Islam. Um, oh man. 
Okay, so wait, the, the, can you repeat? Okay. Um, what advice do you have for women who are interested in reconciliation or Again. if they divorce, they want to divorce beautifully, but their husbands do not behave beautifully? Okay. Um, and then the one about IS-6 okay. being used and then yeah. prenuptial agreements and then also in, in divorce child custody. Yeah, prenuptial agreements of, um, okay, first child custody, let's postpone that because we're going to, inshallah, come to it. Um, so let, let's postpone that, uh, and because uh, and it, we can't do it too. Uh, we don't. We can't do it quickly. It will take us a lot of time. Um, prenuptial agreements has been um, discussed and debated among modern Muslim scholars. Um, the thing, though, is that. Um, the way most personal laws are in Muslim countries, uh, you know, the property uh, in the name of the husband belongs to the husband. The property in the name of the of the of the wife belongs to the wife. Um, prenuptial agreements become rather significant in among uh, Muslims in the West. And normally, the argument that I've heard in for prenuptial agreements is that, oh, it's to make sure that we are complying with Sharia law, um, meaning that we avoid community property. And th this is... Um, I think that if, if the wife and husband in, I think, okay, I'm going to say something that I think the rules of community property are more consistent not always, but more consistent, tend to be more consistent with Islamic ethics than the abuses that I've witnessed facilitated by prenuptial agreements that purport to uphold Sharia law. Prenuptial agreements that purport to uphold Sharia law might honor the letter of the classical positivistic jurisprudence, <coughs> but they are grossly unfair when you have a woman that has been in a marriage again for a number of years, has invested in this marriage Things that she's not compensated for, the, the meals that she's cooked, the cleaning that she's done, the children that she's raised, the, the fact that, you know, if can you imagine if you put a, a market price tag on, on every time the woman cleans her husband's clothes, irons her husband's clothes, you know, prepares meals for her husband and so on, and then... 
after oh you've done all of this because of your duty and these are your obligations and duties anyway and at the end of it uh, she she gets nothing that just no one can convince me that that's god's law or that that's moral ethical or islamic or 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 whatnot um I am very well aware of some of the abuses that take place with community property because on the other hand, you know, people who got married for uh, six months and then, you know, you're entitled to half the property. That also has its absurdities. But a, a type of prenuptial agreement that is Sharia compliant, I actually once tried to draft a, a prenuptial agreement many years ago that sort of, that created, we weren't sure if it was even be enforced by, if it actually would, would be enforced by a court of law, because it, it very, <laughs> it created, a, assessed a market value on all the labor, women of the labor, which would then <laughs> be, yeah, it was a very complicated document. I don't know, I, I, I don't know if these people ever get divorced, but, you know, I've always been curious if if it if it ended up in the court because it had mathematical equations and everything you know and and inflation rates for uh, you know meals cooked uh, house done in the house work done in the house you know just a very very I was young and you know yeah anyway. It's a document too. It's somewhere in the archives, by the way, because there's a copy of it. It was a monstrous 150 pages. Oh my God. Yeah. Because it had took every eventuality. And then if there's children, and then if there are the two children, and, you know, anyway. Um, Okay, should yeah. we move on? Yeah, move on. Um, what, what's, uh... So we just have tomorrow list. We'll try to keep it short. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Um, yeah. One is if you are women who are interested in reconciliation or okay, divorce. Okay, I, I remember that. And want to divorce beautifully or IS6 being okay. used as... Oh, IS6. Yeah, you see, I mean, this is actually connected because typically say, oh, look, you know, uh, here, look, at, uh, in this ayah, it talks about Ujurhin, that, that this is their ajr, that um, uh, all you're really entitled to is, and if, if you go, if you seek anything beyond, then you're acting un-Islamically. And again, it, you know, it, there is a fundamental thing. Did God... Was it God's purpose to say, I don't care about what your situation is, what your contribution to a marriage is. I don't care about whether you have work experience, education, savings. All I care about is that if you are pregnant, you are just entitled to support for the course of your pregnancy. And then beyond that, the only thing is child support. So if you don't have custody, you actually get nothing, right? 
And it is really a, a, a moral question that every Muslim must ask themselves. I mean, these imams that you're talking about that often say, yeah, this is what, this is what God wanted or what God wants. Then, then ask yourself, is it conceivable that the God of the Quran, the God who, talked to, who taught us to say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, the merciful, the compassionate, that this God of mercy and compassion basically is saying, I don't care if women are screwed and I am so one-sided that I put all the power in the hands of men and if, you know, women suffer, that's, that's nothing of interest to me. Is that the God you really worship? Is it really that's the understanding of God? It is a fundamental moral question that I think every Muslim must ask themselves. Because if the answer, if your inclination is no, then, then, there, has to, then there has to be something wrong in the way you are understanding the Quran. I start with the assumption that the Quran is God's word. That the Quran is perfect justice, perfect morality, perfect beauty, and that the shortcoming is in me as the human interpretive agent if I fail to achieve through the Quran that justice, that morality, that beauty. And I believe that as a human being, justice, morality, and beauty must be coherent to me. That a rational human being, rational human beings, that if you take average rational human beings, they would say, yes, that strikes us as beautiful. That's, that strikes us as just. As, yes, there are many things we can disagree about, but that people innately respond to what's moral and what's just. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm unfortunately fully, and, and I, and I, and I, when I see these types of discussions, I just think they're, they're, they're truly tragic. Um, um, I mean, if, Surah Al-Talaq itself, I believe, tells us that you as, as, as people, you live in darkness if you are unable to be fair and equitable towards half of the population. And that you as a people will be a failed people if you, but thinking of, of fairness and equity, then that means we have to use the Quran as an instructional device, not as a law code, because it is not, the Quran is not a code of law. It doesn't meet any of the criteria of a code of law. Um, as to the, the, the really important, this, you know, um, obviously, the, the, it is a, a situation quite often that one side, one partner, 
will try to be very decent while the other is being um, a complete sleaze. Um, one one of the hardest things and one of the things that um, just you really need Allah and being very close to Allah in the process of the divorce is to keep to to for Allah to help you understand what's really important because in divorce emotions are very heightened and people will fight over things that when they look back they can't believe they fought it over so i mean from real life experience i've known people you know who went to war with each other because over a couch who gets the couch or who gets a rug or um you know who gets and in every situation when the people that I've kept in touch with you know when they think back they say yeah you know it was really silly um, so sometimes the other one side is being a complete jerk by wanting to stick to the other side by saying I want this couch, I want this rug, I want this, I want... And if you are able to get that sense of equilibrium, to know what's important, through Allah's grace, let it go. What's not important, let it go. Say, okay, well, fine, if that's what's going to make you happy, take it. Even if it's unfair if you can afford it if it's not if it's not going something that cause you uh just because the other the 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 you know the person in the divorce usually knows you quite well and knows how to get under your skin and so you know they'll say things like again from experiences that i've had um I had a couple, the the woman, the thing that really would just bother her to no end is where her husband would look at her, give her a certain look, she would always say a certain look, and say, you're so pathetic. And this would just, um, and, you know, to, again, through Allah's grace and a sense of equilibrium, don't reciprocate to just, you know, I kept telling her, why don't you just give him a sarcastic smile? And say, you know what, I don't care what you think. You think I'm so pathetic? Oh, thank you for your opinion. Your opinion doesn't matter to me. You know, it was very hard, very hard. Um, now, but that doesn't mean roll over. You know, when... I've had situations where one side, uh, because counting on the other side is thinking of them, well, they're, they're just kind of, you know, it starts 
demanding truly what is like, you know, oh, well, you just use public transportation and the car is mine. You know, it's public, and this was in Los Angeles, public transportation in LA, it's a different, it's a huge difference in quality of life. So no, over something like that, it was worthy of making a stand. If you know someone who's pious and someone that was trustworthy, not someone who's close, who's would be invested, like a, often family members are too close, but like a trusted friend or something like that, that can help you keep perspective as to what's worth fighting for. Um, just don't allow things to ultimately make you lose a sense of who you are as a human being. Because a lot of times in, in situations like that, people start slinging mud at each other so much so that they no longer can feel who they are. They, they say, I'm, I'm just a person that I don't know anymore and I don't even like. That's when you truly um, make the unjust victorious. It's like when you truly make a demon turn you demonic. Um, don't ever allow a demon to make you another demon. You know, you can fight off a demon, but, but remain an angel. Don't ever become another demon. That's the, that's the advice I, I've given repeatedly over the years. Okay, alhamdulillah, thank you again um, for this incredible session. And um, I'm so excited for us to continue on next week, inshallah, um, on Wednesday. So um, thank you for being with us and uh, have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Inshallah, we'll see you again soon. Assalamu alaikum.